in 2018, uh, Larry Nasser was convicted in a Michigan court of child pornography and sexual assault. There were over 265 young women that were a part of the case against him. Young women that he had misused and abused. Young women whose trust he had exploited to take advantage of him. Rachel Denhollander was the first to report Larry Nasser's misdeeds. And she was the last one to speak to him directly at his sentencing. I want to read Rachel's statement that she made. She said, in our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. Rachel continued, by his grace, I too choose to love this way. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. We're working our way through the Apostles' Creed confession of faith that dates back to the early days of the Christian church. We come today to this statement, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I personally have a love-hate relationship with forgiveness. Now, I love to be forgiven. I don't always love the forgiving others part. It's not that I'm unwilling. Um, I, I usually do like kind of move to a place of forgiveness. It's just that I like to keep pulling it back out every once in a while and check up on it, make sure it's okay, and then I have to do it again and again and again and again and again. It's complicated by the fact that when I commit an offense, when I, when I sin, there, there's usually some explanation for it, right? There's something that's like, oh, yeah, I did that, and I'm sorry I hurt you, but, you know, there was these extenuating circumstances that I can mitigate the offense with. When my offenders sin against me, the things that they say that they offer as explanations really just sound like excuses, There's actually a psychological theory. It's called the attribution theory. It goes like this. Attribution theory is about what we attribute the reason for the things that other people do 
How, how do we account for it? And in attribution three, most human beings, when we're assessing why somebody did something to us, why they wronged us, our inclination is to attribute it to their personality or their character. They're just that kind of person. That's just the way they are. At the same time, when we're assessing, attributing the reasons for our own behavior, our tendency is to attribute it to our circumstances, to our situations. Okay, well, maybe it was wrong, but it goes like this, right? When the guy cuts me off on the freeway, it's because either he's rude and inconsiderate and somehow thinks he's more important than me and everybody else on the road that he has to cut me off. When I cut somebody off on the freeway, it's because I have something very important to do, something very important to be. And if everybody only knew what I was doing and where I was, I can't explain it to them, but then they would understand why I did what I did. It's like this, right? When we do something wrong, when you do something wrong, you need to know that you did something wrong. And if I just let you off the hook for it, then how will you know? And if you don't know, then you'll probably just do it again. So I'm actually trying to save you from future embarrassment and shame and sin by reminding you or telling you, hey, this is what you did wrong. And the kind of general response is, well, if you did something wrong, and I'm telling you that you did something wrong, maybe I did do it wrong, maybe I didn't do it wrong, but for sure what you're doing was wrong because you're, however you're explaining it, what you're doing is worse than what I did because you've probably done the same thing before, and you're doing it the wrong way. You're being insensitive or overly critical. And what we discover is that two wrongs don't make a right, right? Two wrongs actually just make another wrong that makes another wrong that makes another wrong that makes another wrong that leads to an endless abyss of wrongs. Unforgiveness is the stuff of failing friendships, of broken marriages, of family feuds, of neighborhood battles. It's the stuff of gang warfare, of road rage. It is the stuff of cultural wars, of political wars, and war wars. It is the natural human response to being wronged. And humanly speaking, we actually, from a human perspective, have no right to expect forgiveness from anyone and no obligation to offer it. Humanly speaking, by definition, forgiveness is undeserved. It's undeserved. It's by definition because what is it? Forgiveness, you have the word give in there, which is saying you're going to give something. Anything you give is not something that's earned or deserved, right? You're giving it. And forgiving is saying you're you're paying this, you're paying something forward, you're giving something forward that is not warranted, that's not reserved, that's not deserved. It's humanly speaking, no one could say you 
have to forgive me. Or you ought to forgive me. The problem is the fruit of not forgiving is things like betrayal, right? If you offend me and I don't forgive you, I feel betrayed because I trusted you, because you, you um, didn't fulfill my expectations, my obligations, your commitment to me, your, your respect for me. It's betrayal, which often leads to bitterness, anger, resentment. That's actually the word that I like the best for this reason. Because all those other things kind of fit into this. Unforgiveness leads to resentment. I didn't know this till this week. Did you know that the word resentment, actually, if you go back to the etymology of it, means to feel again? To resent someone or something is to feel again the anger or the bitterness or the betrayal that we experienced when it happened. Resentment, to feel again. And that seed of bitterness or anger, that resentment, to feel again is to feel it again and again and again and again and again until we let it go, or if we don't. To feel again. And the thing about resentment is it doesn't compartmentalize well. It's like, if I have this bitterness, this resentment towards this person because of what they did to me, because of the offense to me, I would like to think that I can just keep it in this little box and it won't affect the rest of my life. But it doesn't stay in the box. What happens is that we carry that pain with us everywhere we go, and into other relationships, to other things that go on in our life. That we have an experience that reminds us of that thing that happened in this other relationship. It's like, uh uh-uh, that's not, nobody's going to do that to me again. And we're carrying that baggage into this. It triggers responses in us that we don't even know that we're having. We reenact, we reenact that same thing in other places and other relationships. The story of our past, of our debts and our debtors. Then write the chapters of our future. Dooming us to a life of victimization and victimizing. Because what happens when we are victimized, inevitably, is we will turn and pass that on to other people. Victims victimize. That's the human way. That's the, in our fallen, or that's the way it works. Over and over again. And yet, come back and, coming back to the Apostles' Creed, right, I Believe in the forgiveness of sins. These are the pillars. These confessions in the Apostles' Creed are the pillars of the Christian faith. Among them, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Think about it. 
Who's our namesake, right? The Christian church, Christians, are named after Christ. To be a Christian is to learn to be a little Christ or to be like Christ. And from his conception, remember the story of the angel coming to Joseph? You will call him Jesus. You will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins and his very identity is Savior. Or think about John the Baptist. When the first time he see Jesus, sees Jesus, he's the, 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 um, the forerunner announcing the coming of the Christ. He sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's at the heart of the Christian faith. You look at Jesus' life and his ministry and when he encountered people, the worst of their day, right? There were sinners and there were tax collectors and prostitutes and they were kind of the worst of the sinners. And every time Jesus met one of those worst of sinners, he loved them. He embraced them. He announced forgiveness over them. He accepted them. Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 18, talking about the church, and it was Jesus' um, conflict resolution policy, right, for, um, for his people. This is the way it's going to work, he says. If your brother or sister sins against you, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to go to your brother or sister who has offended you, who has sinned against you, and I want you to talk to them. And I want you to figure it out, work it out. Try and, you know, is it a misunderstanding, miscommunication? Did you really mean what you said? Did you really say what I thought you said? Right? Can we figure this out? Go talk to the person before you do anything else. Before you talk to your mom, before you talk to your best friend, before you, right, go talk to the person. And if that doesn't work, then go find somebody else and go and talk with them together and see if maybe a neutral party can help you figure it out and understand each other and come to some kind of reasonable understanding. If that doesn't work, then take it to the church. Take it to the community of faith. Take it to the people who love both of you and see if together you can't come to some kind of resolution. And then, if that doesn't work, he says, if this person who is offended, and they're not seeing it, and they're not getting it, it says, like, treat them as a tax collector and sinner. Well, again, I think it's just such a striking thing to say, for Jesus to say, because he treated tax collectors and sinners with love and grace and mercy. He's like saying, go back to the very beginning and love them you did when they weren't even a brother or sister at all. The interesting thing is, right before Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 18, he's, he tells the, the parable of the lost sheep. You know the parable of the lost sheep? The, the, the shepherd has, 99, has 100 sheep, and, and one of them's missing, and he leaves the 99 to go to find the one lost sheep and bring it back into the fold, right? The person who strays, the person is like, go bring them back into the family. Bring them back into the community. That's a, right before this. He's talking about forgiveness. He says, do this. And then right after this, he says to Peter, he has this comment with Peter saying, forgive, work it out, do whatever you can. And he says, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth 
will be loosed in heaven. The things that you do here, church, have heavenly implications. And what follows this is Peter clearly understood that what Jesus was talking about from the parable of the lost sheep to his directives to the conflict resolution policy for the church to the binding and loosing of heaven and earth, what Jesus is talking about is forgiveness. Because the, the next question he asked Jesus is this. Jesus, how many times? How many times do I have to forgive? How many times do I have to go out and find that wandering lost sheep again, Jesus? How many times do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? How many times? Four? It was actually the industry standard for Jesus' day, right? Four. It was actually three, and he's like raising the bar. Four, Jesus, would that be enough? He says, no, no, Peter, not four. Seventy-seven times. Seven. And then Jesus tells this parable. Therefore, Matthew chapter 18, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So he goes out, says, I'm going to settle my accounts with my servants. And he calls in a servant who owes him more than he can pay. Oodles and oodles of money. And the servant comes in and he can't pay. And he pleads with the master, with the king. He says, I'm sorry. I will do everything I can. Forgive me. I will go out. I will find a way. I will repay you. Have mercy. Pleads for have mercy on me for my debt. And the king extends mercy to him. And then from there, the servant goes out, and on his way home, he runs across his buddy, who he loaned 10 bucks to last weekend. And he says, hey, man, I need my money back. He says, I don't have it. Sorry. Have mercy. I'll get your money for you. He says, mm-mm. And he actually, um, right, the, 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 they didn't have, like, um, creditors like we do, and they didn't report you to the, you know, to the creditors, and then they call you like 58 times and say, hey, pay your debt, pay your debt, pay your debt. Just like, no. Then they sold you into slavery, and you paid your debt while you were working it off as a slave. It kind of gives a new concept to the idea of MasterCard, right? He played his MasterCard. It's actually what MasterCard does, right? It's, we don't call it slavery, but it is. He plays his MasterCard with a small debt, and then his friends ride him out to the king. You know what? You just gave this guy his, forgave him his huge debt. He went out, and he has his little bitty debt, and he threw this guy in a jail. Picking up at verse 32, then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Jesus says, hate this part, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Why is forgiveness 
so important to God? Why is it so important to God that not only would he send Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, but say, hey, and also, I'm forgiving you, I'm canceling your debt, also cancel one another's debt. Why is it so important? There was, in my younger days, I understood it this way, summed up in a single verse, Matthew, or, um, Romans chapter 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The consequence, the price to pay for sin is death. And if we're forgiven, then we can go to heaven, right? Forgiveness is so important to God because it's our golden ticket through the golden gates of heaven, not McDonald's, right? It's our, it's our golden ticket into That's why it's so important. And while there's a piece of that that's true, it's woefully, woefully short of what's really going on and what really matters and why it matters so much to God. Not only that we are forgiven, but that we forgive others. In Hebrews chapter 8, quoting the prophet Jeremiah from Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah had written, speaking the prophetic word of God, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is looking hundreds of years into the future. They have a covenant now. It's co this Mosaic covenant. God had taken them out of bondage in Egypt and delivered them into the promised land. He gave them the Ten Commandments and said, obey these commandments. And he gave them the sacrificial system to atone for their sins or to give them a sign of, of this forgiveness to announce it over them. Right? They had this old covenant, but he said, I'm going to give you a new covenant. Something's coming in the future, and it's going to be different. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I'm going to write this new covenant on their hearts. Put it in their minds. And then he says, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. A day is coming when you're not going to sit in the church and the pastor's going to say, hey, I'm going to tell you about God today so that you can know about him from what I know. He says there's coming a day when the preacher's job is not going to be tell people about God. It's going to be to tell people God has forgiven you. Here's what he says. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember them no more. From the least to the greatest, they will know me. No one else is going to have to tell them about it. They will know me. How will they know you, God? They will know me because I will forgive them for their sins. Here's the deal, right? The deal is this. Forgiveness is not a ticket to heaven. Forgiveness is an invitation 
to be cleansed of our sin so that we can be restored to a personal, intimate communion and fellowship with the living God himself, and not just when we go to heaven. That's the thing we miss when we read Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus Lord. We associate eternal life with what happens after we die. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. He's saying, now that we can have this relationship with God, personal communion, fellowship with God now, and it's made possible. Forgiveness is not an end. It's a means to the end, and the end is a relationship with God today. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Sin sabotages relationships. We know this, right? If someone sinned against you, or you've sinned against someone, who's, what's the last? If, if I gossiped about you this morning, who is the last person I want to come face to face with this afternoon? Because of that, right? It creates a barrier. It creates a block. To stop the destruction of sin, you have to remove the barrier, and that's what Jesus did on the cross. He took the barrier away. The fruit of sin is a well-worn path. By well-worn, I mean it goes all the way back to the beginning. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis, and the, the fall of humankind, and right, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and uh, Eve takes from the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. When she's tempted by, by the serpent, she eats of it. Adam is standing right there. He, he eats of it too. And what's the first thing they do? They realize they're naked. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. And they do what? They cover it up. They hide it, right? Find some fig leaves. That's embarrassing. Cover up. And now they're afraid. And they hear God coming. And what do they do when they hear God coming? They hide in the shrubs. And when they're confronted for their forgiveness, they say, oh, God, we're so sorry we messed up. They hide. And God asks them, what is it you've done? Have you eaten from the tree? And Adam says, it's her fault. He blames. Isn't that like just human nature, right? We do something wrong, we're confronted. It's somebody else's fault. Eve, what's your excuse? I was deceived. An excuse, right? Yeah, okay, I did it, but, but, but I was tricked into it. Blaming and excuses. On the cross, Jesus bore the shame. He took the blame. He incurred the wrath and restored the relationship. And restored the relationship. In the same way, the effects of sin cascaded down from relationship to relationship from generation to generation, 
grace, forgiveness, unleashed a force in the universe powerful enough to break this cycle of ungrace. Strong enough to break this cycle where you offend me and I respond in kind. And you respond in kind and I respond in kind. This curse that's passed down from person to person, from family to family, from neighborhood to neighborhood, from nation to nation, and now something enters the equation that just like sin cascaded down can reverse the curse. And God takes the initiative. God breaks the cycle. We can know God. And when we know God, then, we tap into the life of God and the love of God and the character of God. And what is the life of God and the love of God and character? It is a God of justice and of mercy. And he satisfies his justice by taking it upon himself. We say that salvation is a free gift. It was not free. It was paid for. It was offered freely to us. Forgiveness works the same way, right? We forgive a debt. We incur the cost of that debt. When my kids were little, my nephews were at our house playing. And they're out in the backyard, and one of the kids broke a window. And they were scared. They were hiding. And I talked to them. It was an accident, right? I said, it's okay. I forgive you. But I still had to pay to fix the window. I took the debt. I paid it myself. God assumes the debt so that we can be restored to this relationship with him. He takes the initiative. And so now we can know him and we can know God. And by knowing God, we can be tapped into the life of God. A couple weeks ago, we, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Christian church bound together, created, born out of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, my sins forgiven. Now the Spirit lives in me, God dwells in me, so that I can then forgive others. The experience of being forgiven makes it possible for us to give. Now, the tendency for many of us is to read the parable of the unmerciful servant. It's like, okay, right, you know, but the things that have happened to me are way worse than the things that I've done. My debt is not that big, really, honestly. And some pretty heinous things have happened to people. And humanly speaking, I, I can get it. I can understand that. Paul actually addresses this in Romans chapter 1. He, he, he's writing to the church at Rome, and he's saying, hey, you know what? You guys look around, and you see all these people, and they're doing all this horrible, heinous stuff out in the world and, and committing all manner of vile sin and, and corruption. And, and I mean, they're, just, they're all terrible, aren't they? He, all like half of Romans 1, he's saying, they're terrible, they're terrible, they're terrible. God's wrath is coming down upon them. Then he gets to Romans chapter 2, and he, and he says, and those of you who judge them... 
All those people doing all that terrible stuff out there, all those Democrats or all those Republicans or all those Iraqis or all those, all those people doing all this terrible stuff, he says, you're just like them. Because if you judge, I'm not making this up, read it yourself. You assume the role of the judge, and there's only one judge, and he is God. So when you judge someone else, what are you doing? You're taking God's job. Guess what God doesn't like? If sin is other people's problem, we lack compassion. We withhold mercy. And we cast judgment on others. If sin is other people's problem, we will not be people of mercy. It's what Jesus said to the Pharisee. He went to his house, and while he was there, a woman of ill repute came, washed Jesus' feet with her tears, dried him with her hair. Simon the Pharisee says, what are you doing? If he was really a prophet, he would know what an evil woman this is. Jesus asked him a question. And it comes down to this. Jesus says, I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Whoever has been forgiven much forgives much. And whoever forgives has been forgiven little forgives little. Jesus took the sin of the world upon himself on the cross. Hebrews says because he did that, he can identify with us in our suffering. He can identify actually in us with us in our sinfulness because he bore our sin, because he carried it for us. But he doesn't just forgive us. He gets us. He gets us. He understands what it is to feel the shame and the pain and the blame and the brokenness because he bore our sin for us. Which, think about this. When Jesus was on the cross... He says of the people who crucified him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't just say, Father, give them, forgive them for hanging me on the cross. That's what they did. He's forgiving them for not knowing why they did it, not even understanding what was going on. His mercy was extending to the very why of what we do, when we do it, why we do it. He identifies us. Can we identify enough with the people that have sinned against us that we can, even though it was wrong, understand a little bit about where they're coming from and say, you know what? 
been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. Maybe not that, but this, some other way, shape, or form. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's a confession of faith. It's a confession of faith. It's believing that I am forgiven so I can know God. You can know God. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for forgiveness, you can know God, not just know about him, not just hear me talk about him. You can have a personal, intimate communion, fellowship with God because your sins are forgiven. Because you can know God, you can also, you ready for this? You can love your enemies. Ah, really? That's what Jesus says. Why? I mean, do you think when Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that he was just like making a rhetorical, like, yeah, you know, I don't really mean this, but he actually expected that we would do it. How could he expect it if he wasn't actually making it possible for us to do it? The Spirit of God lives in us so that we can now actually love our enemy and pray for them. We may not like them yet. We can love and entrust them to God's future. Through forgiveness, we can end the cycle of pain and shame and resentment be forgiven and release others of their past debts. And when we leave those things in the past, we do not then have to carry them into the future. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Will determine our future. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. It can inform our future. We can learn from the things that have happened to us and the things that have been, and the things that we've, we can learn from them. It can inform our future, but it does not dictate our future. Unforgiveness. It's the same chapter being written over and over and over and over to feel again, to feel again and again and again and again and again. Forgiveness breaks the cycle. To a new future. As we've done each week, I'm going to close by asking you to recite the words of the Apostles' Creed with me. They're up on the screen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From then he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. I did it again, didn't I? I messed everybody up. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done on earth, in your church, in your people, in our lives, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us, those who have sinned against us, as we forgive, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.